Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, it's me, Amara Jones. Welcome to the Transflash Podcast, a show where we tell trans stories to save trans lives. November is National Native American Heritage Month, where we lift up the tremendous contributions of the people and cultures which have been here for tens of thousands of years. What is often left out of these reflections, however, is the fact that indigenous communities across what we now call the United States have celebrated and honored gender expansive people long before people from Europe ever reached this land. So today I want to explore this deep history and how it can inform what it means to live beyond the binary as an indigenous person, even for all of us, now and into the future. First, I'll chat with Diné scholar and advocate Charlie Amaya Scott about honoring her various intersectional identities. There's a sort of slight disruption of what it means to be trans when you sort of move beyond the colonial gender binary. And that's where I think transness really expands and sort of materializes a little bit beyond what we currently know. Then I'll talk with Cleopatra Tatabele about their work as a Black two-spirit change maker. People will always be anti-Black towards me or anti-Indigenous and try to like keep me out of spaces or keep me out of wherever. But like, we're all entitled to healing. Just a heads up, we had some issues with Cleopatra's microphone, so the first few minutes of their interview may sound a little strange. But bear with us. It doesn't last for very long. So with that, let's start out as always with some trans joy. Two-spirit people have always played important roles in their communities, serving as warriors, healers, and religious leaders. But colonization and Western conceptions of the gender binary have suppressed this rich history. Today, the Bay Area American Indian Two-Spirits, or Bates, is working to restore and recover the role of two-spirit people in order to celebrate their contributions. Over the past 25 years, they've built a powerful forum for the spiritual, cultural, and artistic expression of two-spirit people in San Francisco. Their annual powwow is the first and longest-running two-spirit powwow in the world, bringing together thousands of people from across the country. Here's Bates board member Von Harjo to tell us more. Whenever I was 15 and I went to the two-spirit powwow the first time, I had never felt more at ease, at home, safe, and like really embraced than I had whenever I was there. And 
I'm really lucky that I still get to go to those gatherings and now I get to help with some of the organization of it because there's something so healing in my body that resets every time I'm able to have one of these events where everyone is on the same page and coming from the same experience and wanting to recover their role and revitalize it and really embracing all of that together is really moving. Fawn, you, and the Bay Area American Indian Two Spirits are trans joy. I'm so grateful to be chatting with Dene, scholar, educator, and advocate, Charlie Amaya Scott. Born and raised within Navajo Nation, Charlie is an outspoken and thoughtful voice on what it means to be queer, trans, and indigenous in the 21st century. You may have seen Charlie's reflections on Instagram, TikTok, or X, formerly known as Twitter, where she works to inspire joy and justice under the handle Dene Aesthetics. Charlie is an advocate for more inclusivity on college campuses and an academic scholarship. They've spoken at universities across the country about creating cultures that support and honor Black and Indigenous, queer, and trans students. When she's not delivering speeches or going viral on social media, Charlie is studying as a doctoral candidate at the University of Denver. Her research focuses on the intricacies of settler colonialism, social media, and higher education. Charlie, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for the invitation, Amara. Well, anytime, anytime. (laughs) One of the things that I think is really important, of course, about speaking with Native communities and people is the fact that, one, Native communities and people are, are... not something from the past, not something that don't exist anymore, but are still very much a part of what we call the United States and are connected to the land. I just think that it's always important for us to remember that. But secondly, the existence of Native peoples and the stories and the culture of Native people underscore that being trans is not anything new. And I know that you've spoken about that in the context of highlighting Diné culture. And I'm just wondering if you can unpack that a little bit for us. Yes, being trans is not new. And I think it's partly because my definition of transness really comes from an understanding that you are sort of intentionally disrupting and changing how society views you and how it understands you as a person as related to your gender identity and gender presentation. But I also think there's a sort of slight disruption of what it means to be trans when you sort of move beyond the colonial gender binary. And that's where I think transness really expands and sort of materializes a little bit beyond what we currently know. So in the context of Diné culture in particularly, and it's been so long since I've talked about this, within my community, how we understand gender, and there are quotation marks that I'm making here, isn't really connected to the physical. And so imagine that you have like a circle. And then the circle is divided into four parts because... Four is sort of a sacred number within many indigenous communities, particularly in mine it is. 
And so you have the social, how you relate to someone, the mental, how you think of yourself, the spiritual, what you have learned about yourself and your connection to the ancestors. And then the fourth one is the emotional, your ability to relate to one another through emotional connection. And as you can probably hear, like the physical is not really prioritized. And a lot of that we learn from our creation stories and what we learn about ourselves really comes from the stories of what it means to be Dinna. And there's not really an emphasis on sexual organs. I think one of my favorite stories is actually about how first women created the penis and the vagina. And although there's different retellings of it, the one that I wrote for Yes Magazine actually centers and is inclusive towards our intersex and trans relatives. Because in my particular retelling, first woman creates the penis, creates the vagina, and then gives that gift to our people, telling us that at a particular age, every Dineth person needs to undergo a ceremonial transformation in which they choose whether they want the penis the vagina, they can also have both that they wanted, or they can refuse both of them. And so when it comes to transness, when it comes to Dine cosmology, gender isn't material in the way that we come to understand it. But I also think there's a sort of beauty in the evolution of culture and language that we are starting to sort of witness, especially as more marginalized communities like Black and Indigenous communities and communities of color, queer and trans communities of color, how they are starting to share their stories, share their truths with the world, and be able to share what it means to be queer, trans, Black, Indigenous, or a person of color, or all of the above. And so that's something I'm looking forward to because this understanding of what it means to be trans and this what it means to be Dine, culture, language, and identity are transforming and growing together with other people, which really emphasizes the point of how you know yourself is really related to the social, emotional, mental, and spiritual. Yeah, the body not being the defining instrument in our identity or who we are. Exactly. But then I think there's also something to celebrate when you get to choose how you present yourself in the physical world. And I think that's something I want to recognize, acknowledge, and celebrate. I mean, like as someone who was, you know, was really known for their hair. I mean, like at one point in my Instagram bio, I was like indigenous trans fan with gray hair. Like, I love that. (laughs) And there are some teachings about the different parts of our bodies that are really significant. For example, hair. We're taught as the net that we're supposed to tie up our hair as a way to sort of become in control of our thoughts, become in control of ourselves, which is why it's so important for us to have our hair up in a sia. As someone who has worn a sia, it is not particularly fun because it can be very tight. <laughs> and if you're not used to having your hair pulled, it can hurt just a little, especially if you have it in there all day. But there are teachings around hair and our connection to hair and relationship to hair that I also think is beautiful, especially when it's queer and trans people who are telling those stories, especially when they share stories of like, what is their relationship to their hair? 
Because you can see that that relationship is really informed by their trendness and queerness, but also in the retellings of these Diné teachings. What is a Sia? So a Sia is sort of like a traditional Navajo bun, and it's made from yarn or the wool of a sheep. It comes in different lengths, but usually it is about the size and length of like when you outstretch your arms. And it usually comes in white and there's different variations of it, but the traditional ones are definitely those like long strings of yarn that are tied at the ends. And I don't know how to exactly explain the process of it, but it's sort of like wrapping your hair into a bun. One of the posts that you did that ties into pop culture and that got a lot of responses actually you, I'm pretty sure it's in Native today, dress with the Barbie icon. Kind of this total fusion of kind of the ancient and pop culture. And I'm wondering if you can uh, talk a little bit about the need for us to bring those two things together. Again, like showing the the importance and the power and the relevancy of, of Native culture to our present. Of course. There's something quite powerful, actually, about that when Native people are able to connect with pop culture in a way that's both accessible, but also very personal. I mean, you see this with, like, memes, you see this with um, reservation dogs, you see this with different cultural iconic moments, such as, I think, particularly with Barbie. And the thing is, is that Mattel actually has a very interesting relationship when it comes to representing Indigenous peoples. And I actually have, I think, two Native American Barbies, and that's me quotation again, Native American Barbies. One of them is actually um, dressed in what I would assume is Alaskan Native. And the other one from their adult Princess of the World collection is Miss Navajo Nation. And Interestingly, my mother and my sister have an outfit very similar to hers, and I've actually worn (laughs) that particular outfit on several occasions myself. And so when we see representation of ourselves, there is either two particular ways that we can respond. We can actually affirm this representation, or we can critique it. I mean, there's also a third way where you can do both, which is what I tend to do when it comes to really celebrating Barbie. Because I I enjoyed Barbie. And as someone who used to have Barbies growing up as a child and then had that taken away because it wasn't, Barbies were not something that boys were meant to play with. Our relationship to Barbie is both nuanced and something that people can relate to because they've had it taken away from them, especially if you grew up as a queer or trans child. And then add on this layer of being Danette I didn't know that there was a Miss Navajo Nation Barbie. And to have a version of her, to have my culture represented in a way that I'm like, wow, this is quite wonderful to see. But then you have to understand that there's this layer of like capitalism too. You're like, oh wait, they took this. I don't know who they consulted with. And they profit from it. And so... I think that's something that, like, a lot of marginalized people have to do is, like, they have to sort of, like, battle of, like, do I support this? Do I critique this? What does this mean for me? Yeah. 
And I tend to take the approach of like, okay, what does this mean for us like on the grand scheme of things? Because people are having these conversations of Barbie. They're having these conversations of Native representation. And I think particularly they were having conversations of what it means to have a joke about smallpox in the Barbie movie. And what does that mean for us as Indigenous people? Hmm. And so I find like if conversations can happen and if conversations can be facilitated and encouraged in a way that moves towards supporting a cause, I think those are necessary conversations to have. Some conversations might be uncomfortable, but those are needed. They're needed for you to grow and change and evolve and really change your point of view of things. And so it's really important, I think, for Indigenous people to really be involved in these conversations around pop culture and also recognize our own contributions to pop culture in ways that reflect who we are as Indigenous people, but also challenging the ways that our voice have been taking, our representation has been stolen from us and made to serve like a colonial capitalistic agenda. And that's something we need to both challenge. And I think the best way to do that is having these conversations publicly. Yeah, it's it's so fascinating because it's both an embrace of the tradition and then at the same time, totally inverting it and using it to push kind of the exact opposite of why we have Barbie in the first place <laughs> and what she represents. That's an example of the way in which you can use a seemingly innocuous cultural phenomenon to make a larger point. But then there's another part of our culture that we all know really well, which is the ferocity of the attacks on trans people. But I think that embedded kind of in the experience of Native people since the very first contact with Europeans has been how to survive those type of attacks. And so what do you think are the insights or the learnings that you personally draw upon from the experience of Native people in this country to help navigate and understand what's happening to trans people overall in this moment? One of the biggest insights I can share is build community. And that might seem like, Charlie, what the heck? But it's so necessary. And I think that's something to recognize is that Indigenous peoples within the U.S. empire and Indigenous peoples across the world, the way that we survive is because we care for each other. We build relationships with each other. And as we know with movement building and movement histories within this country, community is necessary for survival. I mean, when we think about the attack of ending slavery, particularly with the Black community, you see that it was really them coming together, working together to really address the harms and violence of racism and the legacy of slavery. And then you also see when it comes to cross-solidarity movements between the Black community and Indigenous community, and I think the best example is actually Standing Rock. Like so many Native nations came together at Standing Rock and then invited so many of their allies and asking for solidarity. And I remember a lot of people from the Black Lives Matter movement coming in to offer insight and support. And you really start to see that movements happen in community. Movements are because of community. And with what's happening against the trans community, it's, 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 <laughs> I'm always at a loss of words on how to describe it because it's so scary. And I, 
try my best to remind people of their brilliance, their beauty, and their power, and also the necessity of community. Because if you don't have people who are with you, if you are alone, that is difficult to survive. And I think about the history of violence that happened against my community um, when it came to Spanish colonization and the U.S. militarism. And we, as a NE, really survived the atrocities of settler colonialism and continue to survive the atrocities of settler colonialism. It's because we build community with each other and with other Native nations around us and across the U.S. empire. And so... This is all to say to emphasize that we really need to remind people of who we are as a community, what we bring, and what we remind them of. And I think something that this might be a little hard for a lot of folks to hear is that like white trans people are not the best at building community. And because of the history of individualism that's connected to white supremacy and settler colonialism, it's sort of frustrating having to challenge the sentiments of white trans people and to really remind them that they need to start building community with Black and Indigenous people and really support the movements that Black, Indigenous, queer, and trans people are doing. Because one thing that I think we're most proud of, because when you have a community, you have someone that you are answerable towards. You have something that you are responsible for. And so that's something that I have found along the way that a lot of white trans people don't necessarily have. As you say, in order for everyone to make it, we have to emphasize this larger sense of community. I mean, I, I kind of think that it also is about the idea of people being singular, being punctured in this moment, because the way that these laws are working, the way that the political movement is working, the way that the increasing threats of mass violence are taking place alongside, of course, longstanding acts of individual violence across communities is that it takes away that idea that the world cares that you somehow believe that you're different than everybody else. And I'm wondering what, what you think about that, that like, as these things step up, the idea that, oh, because I am who I am, I'm somehow immune or outside of what's happening. I think that's a lie that a lot of people are telling themselves as a way to comfort the reality that they could possibly be next. I mean, like, Something that I think we all know is, well, something that I know, I'm a secret eye here. <laughs> something that I know is that people are, people tend to be afraid to take accountability. They tend to be afraid of being marginalized, which is interesting to me because there are people who are pretending to be Black, pretending to be Native, pretending to be Latine as a way to acquires some sort of platform or access to opportunities. But my belief is that people isolate themselves as a form of protection, as a form to feel some sense of invincibility because 
you know, they're alone. (laughs) But when it comes to this larger conversation around people sort of lying to themselves that they won't be affected, it's, 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 it's sort of like a little tragedy because then you're telling yourself that you don't have to care about your neighbor. You don't have to care about the person in your community. You don't have to care about anyone but yourself. And that type of thinking creates more harm than good because like as we have witnessed as Indigenous people, one of the beliefs around settler colonialism, it really was the elimination of Indigenous people as a collective. There was this really strong indoctrinization to make us privilege and honor the I instead of the we. I think about what happened with the American Indian boarding school movement and how there's just so much effort to stop Indigenous people from speaking their language. So much effort to stop them from seeing themselves as a collective with their traditions and culture. There was so much intent to eliminate who we were as a community, as a collective, and so much effort to blend us in into U.S. society to really honor and privilege and center the I. And so when people lie to themselves that they are not infected, that is, in my understanding, a continuation of settler colonialism. And with the laws that are being passed, people are starting to realize that these anti-trans laws are going to impact them. They're going to face so much social stigma if they don't look cis, which is interesting because I'm just like, how do you look cis? If you don't conform to social standards and norms, you are going to be targeted. So instead of celebrating the diversity and honoring the experiences that exist in the plethora, there is this larger narrative being formed of what it means to be a U.S. citizen, what it means to be a man, and what it means to be a woman. And if you don't fit into that narrative, you are going to experience so much violence in your life. And so... It is really necessary for us to work together to really challenge what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, and to really challenge these anti-trans laws. Because at the end of the day, they're not going to affect us because, I mean, we live our entire lives. Some of us live our entire lives in stealth. Some of us live our entire lives surviving. And so we know how to negotiate with social standards. It's going to impact the cis people who never had to really think about how the world sees them. And then they're going to have this one moment where they wake up, they're going to be like, oh, shit, what did I do? Why am I being targeted? And we're going to be like, we told you so. And I'm hoping that we don't get to that point. Because at that point, I don't know what there might be to do. And so it really is imperative that we work right now and working against this legislation on really having these conversations publicly and privately with family, with community, with friends, with neighbors, and to really remind them that there is more power in the collective, more freedom and liberation when we work together than there is when we sort of separate ourselves from each other. Yeah, and I also think about how the experience of Native people in this country fundamentally underscore that you can't 
negotiate or accommodate people who are trying to destroy you, right? That even Mm -hmm. if you believe that you or the people close to you will be somehow immune from the larger project that is underway, that, that that never ends well. Oh, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. Even though, yes, they're in my community who think that they can, I have unfortunately learned along the way that you can't negotiate, you can't diminish your brilliance, your culture, your language, because if you give them an edge, then they will push you over. Lastly, as a part of your own cultural brilliance, there's an ongoing emphasis on joy and self-realization that we all are engaged in, but you do it through your own particular lens, just like everyone does. And one of the things that kind of ties all these strands that we've been talking about, about the past, the present, the future, survival, acceptance, community, I think can be boiled down to the embrace of your grandmother, of you as being her trans granddaughter. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that and the hope embedded in that, because I've had people who are Native write to me and say, I'm on um, my reservation, I won't name the reservation, and I can't be out on my reservation. I'm actually fearful for my life. And I think that things like you did give so many people hope. That is... (laughs) I am so glad that I give people hope because I think something that I have difficulty is actually what I shared online about my relationship to my grandmother is actually not the entire story. People see this moment of her embracing me, but they don't understand the journey it took for that to happen, the conversations needed, the tears. Hmm. A lot of people don't know this, but I grew up with the Mormon church. And my grandmother is a devout Mormon or Latter-day Saint, as they call them, because apparently Mormon is a slur. (laughs) But she grew up as a member of the Latter-day Saint church and still is an active member of the church. And I remember growing up and going to church with her and having these religious interactions with her But it was my mother who really had these conversations with me about what it means to be trans. And at one point, there was an entire month where my mother and I did not talk because she absolutely refused to use my pronouns until my sister told her, like, look, Hmm. it's necessary that you respect Charlie's pronouns, and this is why. And there was like a light bulb that went off in my mom, and she finally realized why it was so important for her to use the pronouns, why it was so important for her to recognize me as non-binary, as as trans femme, as someone who does not identify as male or female or a man or a woman within the colonial gender binary. And my mom had those conversations with my grandma. And although my grandma still misgenders me every now and then, there is a difference between my grandmother. My grandmother is 78, And yeah, she may call me he or son every now and then, but it was that moment where she saw me in a dress, where she saw me in a siyeth, where she saw me in like a traditional Navajo woman's clothes. And the fact that she called me beautiful, that healed a part of me that I didn't know needed healing. It was a moment where like I sort of felt accepted because 
my grandmother witnessed a moment of just pure trans joy and she loved it. Although, yes, she still misgenders me every now and then. I hold on to that moment because she saw me the way that I've always wanted to be seen. And to have it accepted, to have it be affirmed, especially in our language, that's so powerful and really reminded me that my family loves me. They may not understand everything about me, but at the end of the day, they love and support me and will literally defend me if anyone says anything awful. I mean, you should hear some of the words that my mom and grandma say about people who troll me on the internet. (laughs) But there's just something there of like having a grandmother who is a devout Mormon who at the end of the day, despite seven, eight years of being indoctrinated into Christianity, loves me and supports me and even, and knows that I am beautiful regardless. And I really do hope that other people experience that. But I also know that that's not always available. And at one point when I wasn't talking to my mother or my family, I had to reckon with the possibility that I won't have the love needed from my family. And in a way, that sort of reminded me of my own strength as a person, but also the fact that I had community. There were people there who support me. There were people there who were talking to me, who were guiding me through this process of the possibility of not talking to my family and reminding me that I am loved. And I know that that's possible for anyone, that they can find family, they can find kin, That is the beauty of building community with other queer and trans people, especially other two-spirit and LGBTQ plus people who are Native, is that like, even if our family, our nation, our tribes reject and neglect us, we at the end of the day can care for each other. And that's something that I always try to integrate within whatever I create with whatever I share is that there is this level of care and love that I have for my community that I'm thankful that I got from my family, but I know there's others out there who don't have it and I want them to have it so much. And if I can be the person to give it to them, then that's, I hope, is enough. Well, Charlie, thank you so much. I think that everyone will listening will certainly know and agree that you are enough and they're grateful for the many lights that you shine in the many ways on the various communities that your very being represents. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me and sharing time and space with me. That was scholar and advocate, Charlie Amaya Scott. Hey y'all, I'm Erin Haynes the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, 
wherever you get your podcasts. I can't wait to get into this conversation with activist and educator Cleopatra Tatabele. Born and raised in Lenape Territory, or what we now call New York City, Cleopatra is a Black and Indigenous two-spirit changemaker. She's passionate about creating safe spaces for all, including through her original workshops on restorative justice, cultural practices, and more. Cleopatra is also a fierce advocate for diversity through her work as a model and makeup artist, as well as their social media consultation services. She founded Abuela Taught Me, an indigenous Caribbean educational space that centers two-spirit and LGBTQ healing. As part of that organization, Cleopatra offers workshops on ancestral altar making, custom healing regimens, and Taino two-spirit education. You can also find them on Instagram, fostering important conversations about decolonizing relationships, giving land back, and much more. Cleopatra, thanks for making time to talk today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I have to say, we were talking earlier and said that among all of our guests, you have among the best names. Oh my God. Thank you so much. Uh, my parents did give me my first name, but my second name was given by my community. So I'm very thankful y'all like my name. Well, well done to everyone involved. <laughs> Thank you. Gold stars around. I first want to know if you grew up connected to your indigenous heritage. Yeah. So I will say absolutely not. Um, There are so many ways that over the last 500 years, people have been forced to be disconnected from their indigeneity. And that's something I really had to reckon with as an adult. My family, at least on my mom's side, my dad's side is African-American, Black. My mom's side is Dominican. They're Black and Indigenous. And growing up, it was very, like, taboo to talk about indigeneity, especially in a spiritual sense. This is because, like, Dominicans, my family is very, very Christian. They raised me to be Adventists or Seventh-day Adventists. And that is, is a very strict religion. And the people who are Christian, who came to DR, to my island, specifically use their religion to erase parts of our cultural practices, including our indigeneity, our religious practices and spiritual practices. And things that really made our culture stand out, including our language, our hairstyles, so many things that like Christians would be like, oh, this is like sinning or whatever. So growing up, because I had that Latino like context and that Christian context, there was a lot of things that were erased from my heritage and from my culture. I think the ways that things showed up the most were like food or certain words and language, things like that. But culturally, a lot of things were disconnected. One of the things that I think that happens during this month is that a lot of people think about Indigenous and indigeneity through uh, an American or a North American context. When we're thinking about it, at least in the Western Hemisphere, of course, there were Indigenous people from what we now call Alaska and the Arctic 
all the way to what we call Chile, right? In this entire hemisphere, there were people Mm -hmm. who were indigenous. I'm wondering if that's something that you have to contend with, that conversation about, well, wait, Caribbean, Caribbean, indigenous heritage, what? I know, right? Okay. Uh, I will say, I think it's so funny when people ask that question, because it's like, literally, people are like, oh, Columbus came and like, did a whole bunch of terrible things. But like, Columbus came to... Dominican Republic and Haiti first. Like Mm -hmm. that was the island of Hispaniola. So Mm -hmm. this whole narrative around decolonization and colonization and like when it happened, how it started, literally started on the island of Haiti or like in at least Haiti would be the Taino way to refer to the island of Hispaniola slash Haiti slash DR. Mm -hmm. But it's just so interesting how quick people are to erase Caribbean indigenous people, knowing that we were the ones who were first impacted by colonization. I think this has to do a lot with like, when people got colonized also, being Caribbean, it's like we were the first people to be colonized, literally, versus like other folks say like Northern American folks, they were colonized like 300 years ago. And that 200 years of time really makes a difference in what practices were able to be held on to and what narratives were able to be shared. And even like the technology that people have to share certain things in the records that we keep to keep our histories, they look so different from each other. I mean, it's also the case that when you understand a little bit of the history, at a minimum, of the Indigenous peoples that were in the Western Hemisphere, we understand that there were lots of connections between them, right? That the way in which they engaged each other and the land, there are all these sorts of traces that we can see between them. For example, you know, We know that uh, the Aztecs and others built pyramids, but so did indigenous people in North America, right? Mm -hmm. There are all these ways in which, as you were mentioning, technology and other things were flowing amongst them. Right, exactly. I wanted to start there because, of course, that history, that background, your understanding is also key to understanding your gender identity. And I think the gender identity of Two-Spirit, which people often say is trans, if you've been listening to this program from very beginning, then you know that that's not the case. But, you know, we have lots of people who are new listeners. But when it's actually distinct, it's different. There may be overlap, but there is a difference. Can you just talk about what being Two-Spirit means as you experience it and, and how it's different from our Western understanding of what it means to be transgender? Okay, so this is such a good question, but I I will kind of like roll back. Like one of your questions was like, how did you grow up into this? Like what happened? Like Mm. for me as a kid, it was always like, you're Indio, you're indigenous, but like our practices were not able to be shared around what that actually means, right? Like Mm. it was always about Christianity. And then as an adult, I was like, whoa, first of all, there's some shit going on of my gen... Can I curse? Is that yeah, we'll just put an E on the episode. <laughs> Sorry. Um, there's some shit going on of my gender. I need to figure this out. Also, I can't figure this out in the Christian church. It was really important for me growing up to recognize that I had some things going on of my gender and sexuality and that I had to figure it out. But I could not figure it out with the church that I grew up in. And I knew that I have this indigenous connection. I just didn't know where to celebrate that and where to engage with that. 
So I went out of my way to like literally connect with other indigenous people who were Taino in my area. And I would like go to events. I would like just talk to people. Literally, I was just connecting with people. I was volunteering my time with indigenous orgs. I was like just trying to show up for my community in whatever ways people needed. Um, I didn't really have that many expectations around like what it will look like to claim my indigenous identity. It's like I am indigenous and I don't have to do anything to prove that. But it also is like, how am I showing up for my indigenous community? How am I showing up for people who are like me? So as a younger person, I like went out of my way to do that because I knew about my family heritage. But when it comes to being two-spirit, it was like the more I showed up for people, it wasn't like I just one day decided I was two-spirit. People were like, hey, you're two-spirit, right? You need to go in this section. Like people were literally telling me that I have a role in the community like titling me as Two-Spirit and being like, you have a specific thing that you need to do, whether it's like be in this specific area for this dance or counsel this younger person who is also Two-Spirit and might be struggling with similar things. It was a very like, you are being given this role instead of like one day I sat around and claimed it. It was because I was showing up for my community that that was happening. So when you ask the difference between Two-Spirit whether it's trans or not, there are basically two schools of thought around what Two-Spirit is. Obviously, everyone has their own unique understandings of this, but one, some people would say that Two-Spirit is a umbrella term for everyone who is LGBTQIA within the Indigenous community. So you have to be Indigenous you can be a gay man who's indigenous in the Western world, but you're two-spirit in indigenous communities. You can be a lesbian, a transgender woman who is indigenous. You would be seen as two-spirit. You don't have all those labels in this community. So some people feel like it's that, which is great. I think that's helpful for a lot of folks. And then the other school of thought is that two-spirit is also this gender identity that is a specific and special role within their communities. Some people have whole two-spirit like ceremonies that honor that role in their communities, whether their role is around counseling younger people or counseling couples. They are seen as the bridge between the genders in a way that other people who are cis or heterosexual might not understand. And also like the queerness and the the gender are kind of similar enmeshed in this gender role to really honor that like even someone who might be seen as a lesbian in the western world might also have a special role in gender in this community or in indigenous communities so it's something i see a lot that people have different understandings of it but you know i think all those perspectives are useful as well and how do you think of it personally for me i I think it's both. I, I'm not really super choosy about labels. I created the first Two-Spirit Taino space, as far as I know, that was specific to Taino people. There's so many Two-Spirit spaces that are centered on people who are Northern or people who are from certain areas, but there wasn't ever like a Two-Spirit specific space for Taino people of the Caribbean. And not saying like Caribbean people weren't organizing around queerness, there are so many amazing folks that are really fighting back around some of the oppression that people face 
in the Caribbean around being out and queer or out and trans, but there wasn't anything that united indigeneity, reclaiming indigeneity, and centering two-spirit people, queer and trans people in our community. So a couple years ago, I did that because (laughs) I remember one time I went to a Taino museum opening. It was like one of the first of its kind. Usually if Taino people are in a museum, it's very past tense because there's this idea amongst archaeologists that we don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. And people who are alive today are trying to reframe that narrative. So this museum created a Taino museum with modern artists that are Taino that shared some of their work. Um, It was actually really beautiful and they had an opening party. And I remember there was a panel and the panelists were like open to questions from the community. And someone from the community was like, hey, um," they asked the panelists, do you know what two spirit spaces there are for Taino people? And then like, the panelists didn't say anything like ignorant or like sit like bad, but it was just like, oh, I mean, like two spirit people, like they're like here, like they can like join us and stuff. And that's not really what was asked. The, the question was, what are the spaces for us? Not whether we can be here. We know we can be here. And sometimes we don't know we can be here because even in Taino communities, there's a lot of machismo and sexism and not really honoring people's gender and sexuality. After I heard that question, I was like, you know what? I've been in the community for a minute. If I don't make the space, I don't know who will. So I just started like making workshops, doing talks and like having engagements around Taino spaces. The first event I did like got like thousands of likes on Facebook. I think it's still up, but everyone was just like, oh my God, like I've literally have never seen this and we need to make space for this to happen. So making that space was like one of the first times it was like very specific to Taino two-spirit people and people were excited. They came out and now I have like a little Facebook group just to keep people in touch, even if they're not necessarily on the East coast. And you yourself, do you identify as two-spirit or you identify as trans or you identify as both? I identify as all of those things because I think it depends on the context. If I'm, Like in a more Western context, I might specifically be like, I'm queer and I'm uh, gender fluid. That's basically how I would identify. But if I'm in an indigenous context, I'm already being told that I'm two-spirit. So that is what I am. If you don't have community, then it's not like a role that you will be able to enact, really. It's a community role. It's not just a sexuality label. You have a special... Or gender identity, yeah. Yeah, you have a role in your community. And if you don't have a community, um, what's the point of using a label that no one helps you enact in that way? Can you unpack the the social aspect of being two-spirit? Because as you say, it's not something that within the context is you practice and understand it. It is a self-designation, right? It is yeah. something that comes through participation in community. Can you explain that piece? Because I think that at a time of us identifying very much with our ability to define ourselves, this idea that there is a social aspect to our gender, gender identity, I think might be a record scratch for for some people. Can you just explain that? Yeah. In the Western world, it's all about individual identity. Like it's all about who you are by yourself, like what you represent, 
uh, a lot of it can be, I feel like could be like ego based. Like it's all like individualism all the time. But I feel like in indigenous communities, that's not necessarily the case. All of these labels that enact in indigenous communities are about how we relate to each other. So it's not like, oh, this is my first name and last name. It's like, this is my tribe and my people as an introduction. This is who I am in relation to my tribe and my people. This is a language that we all share with my tribe and my people. That's like indigenous people would introduce themselves to other indigenous people. Versus like, if you're just like at the workplace, people are like, hi, what's your name and pronouns? And like, that's it. But in indigenous context, like, no matter who, like what indigenous people, it's indigenous people all around the world, including like black indigenous people, you know, native indigenous people to the US, to the Caribbean and other areas where representing who you are is representing where you're from and representing your community. So when it comes to being two-spirit, it's not just this idea that like, oh, I'm gay, I'm queer, I'm this, I'm that. Here's the alphabet soup. It's mostly about how you are in relation to others. And people come across Two-Spirit in different ways, depending on what community they're from. For me, it was told to me, and then I eventually was gifted a name that has to do with being Two-Spirit, Tata Belly, basically translated to male-female transforming river, just to acknowledge my gender fluidness. That name is something that sh- is shared just to honor myself and to honor how I show up in community because people see who I am and go to me for specific things or ask me to support them in specific ways. In ancient times, like two-spirit people were seen as like powerful medicine bringers that could be counselors to married couples or be the bridge between genders and certain ceremonies that were about men or women, if someone was literally both, they are able to be there and bring special medicine for that power. Or when people were able to like switch different roles and like if you're hunting and gathering, you can switch if you need to and like honor that process. All of these indigenous labels are always about your community and about how you show up in community. And so that's why that's more present for me. Yeah, no, that's what I was sort of aiming at, which is this idea that your gender also has a role in society, right? It's Mm -hmm. not only that you are self-identify. It is being that within the context of an Indigenous community then confers certain um, responsibilities, right? That saying, for example, that you're trans in a Western context doesn't confer the same thing. Right, exactly. I think a lot of the labels in Western concepts is very much about the self and the ego and the individualistic nature of labels and like how we separate ourselves from each other. And nothing is wrong with labels inherently, but I just feel like in indigenous context, it's not necessarily a label to separate ourselves from others. It's a label to connect ourselves to others. And then another piece of your identity that's really important is um, being Black. Hell yeah. What's so fascinating is the way in which we conceptualize Blackness as separateness from Indigenous, when, of course, we know, for example, in Africa, that's impossible. Of course, there are Indigenous people who are Black. But in the context of the Americas, the way in which there's a long history 
of the formation of communities by Black and Indigenous people. You know, I think about the Seminoles in Florida, which is actually um, an amalgamation of Black and Indigenous people into shared communities that is replicated throughout the Americas. Anywhere we use the word maroon, they're usually a combination of Indigenous and um and Black people in the Caribbean right. and elsewhere. So I'm just wondering what your own personal take and, and your thoughts are about how people believe that being Black and Indigenous are separate when that's just not borne out by history. Yeah. Oh, oh my God. I'm so glad you talked about this because I love being Black and I grew up with a African-American father who's very, like, his roots were in like New York, his roots or his some of his family, I saw in their birth certificates, like very Southern roots in his family as well. And I know that like all of that history helped him become this like amazing, like pro-Black fashion designer like that. He like created so many African designs and like put it in, in Western modern designs in the 70s and 80s. I still have some of his designs today, but just growing up with somebody like that, even though he passed away and I was pretty young, it always helped me like be very proud of who I am. Also, there's this issue in Dominican communities where people are like, oh, I'm not black. I'm whatever. I'm India. I'm this, I'm that. And it's just like, maybe a lot of Dominican people are mixed with other things. And like, similarly with my family, but like, we're also definitely black. Like we're definitely dark skinned people who are black and should be proud of our African ancestry. I think there's like a huge amount of anti-blackness within Dominican communities that I really try to go out of my way to educate folks and help them move through that because people don't want to be associated with African-American black people in the U.S. Even though like we have created so much culture that people take and admire so it's something that I have always really struggled with because I see so much struggle within my community and I, I do my best to correct that. But in terms of like Black people being Indigenous, like I believe that Black people, especially Black people of the diaspora are like stolen Indigenous people, displaced Indigenous people, like forced immigration Indigenous people. Like people don't really like to use that narrative that much. But for me, I think it's incredibly important to acknowledge the medicine and the healing that like sharing where we come from really can bring a community because like there's this huge disconnect across the Atlantic Ocean, that people who are of the diaspora are not indigenous, who are black. And like, we absolutely are. There's just years and years in history of erasure that made it so then it's difficult to claim that. But there are more and more black people of the diaspora claiming their black indigeneity every day. And I really love seeing it, honestly. I mean, the reality that there are people who are both black and indigenous, right? who are of like both heritages, even outside of the context that you were just speaking. I mean, people who, who hold both of those identities as a part of their lived experience. Yeah. You know, I think it's really easy for people to want to attack or question darker skinned people who claim like Northern or American indigeneity in that sense, mm -hmm. or indigeneity of the Americas, not American as in just the U S and it's it's disheartening. I, I love to see Black people like 
explore their roots and get connected in the ways that they see fit. And I've seen that a lot in New York. There's even like the Shinnecock Res, which is mostly a Black group of folks who are Black and Indigenous, who really have grown in the ways that they share space with each other and what it means to like claim their indigeneity because like that history is very strong on the Shinnecock Res and they also have like the biggest power on the East Coast. So it's definitely something to consider checking out once a year. But yeah, I think Black Indigenous people, because Black people are hyper visible and Indigenous people of the Americas are hyper invisibilized, there's all of this erasure and genocide that happens that makes it so then people who are Black Indigenous have a more difficult time claiming their indigeneity versus somebody who is white and Indigenous claiming their indigeneity. Wow. I mean, that, that part is kind of leaving me um, uh, sitting with a lot that, as you say, in the way in which like that's true, that Black indigeneity is questioned, whereas white indigeneity, people who are of both backgrounds, is not questioned, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's even embraced. Yeah, it really is. And I think it's great when people claim their ancestry because the last thing I want to do is be like a colonizer and erase people's ancestry. Like, we don't have to do that. But it's also just like, why are Black people so pushed to erase their indigeneity so easily, so quickly? Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is because people want us to be disconnected from the land. People want us to be disconnected from ourselves and from our roots. But like at the end of the day, so many of us, we are entitled to those reparations and we are entitled to be connected. For me growing up, I always was told and I knew like my family and I could see them also. They look mixed like I know whatever, you know, whatever that means to some people. Obviously, I don't look phenotypically like a quote mixed person. Some of my family does. And I always have seen that and acknowledged that. But it's also just like unacceptable that people think that just because Christianity and colonization took things away from us that we're not entitled to get them back. And for me, I've always gone out of my way to try to connect because I know I'm entitled to that connection, regardless of what people say. Like people are always just like, oh, you didn't grow up with it. So you're not allowed. Who said I'm not allowed? You? I think your Christian colonizers told you that you're not allowed to do that. So I'm going to do whatever I want. Because I get really tired of that narrative that you're not allowed to reclaim stuff if you didn't grow up with it. Like, sorry, my mom from birth didn't, like, put me in a sweat lodge, but, like, I don't give a fuck. She wasn't allowed in one. Neither was her grandparents or her grandparents because of colonizers. So at some point, we got to reclaim our shit. And I feel very entitled to that narrative. I feel very entitled to that healing regardless of what people say, because people will always be anti-Black towards me or anti-Indigenous and try to like keep me out of spaces or keep me out of wherever. But like, we're all entitled to healing. And I'm not going to let no narrative of colonization take that away from me. When if we ignore our ancestry and if we ignore and let people take practices away from our communities, we do exactly what the colonizers want. We continue genocide and we continue to go through the path of erasure, especially with Caribbean indigenous people, Taino people, Arawak people, people literally put in history books that we all are dead. 
And like, I know just looking at my fucking family, that is not true. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I personally know that, for example, there are still Taino people in Puerto Rico, so many sites there that still engage in ceremony there. Yeah, no, that narrative is false. Lastly, one of the things that I think that's really fascinating about the way in which you move through the world is the way that you embrace and claim all of your identities. A lot of times people feel as if they are forced to highlight one thing over another or to have things be either or, which is a very Western way of viewing things, right? That we have to live in a binary world. And I'm just wondering if you can talk about the way in which your native background shapes your ability to be able to embrace all of who you are. Well, I will share a memory from when I was younger. When I was a teenager, I remember walking down the street with my mother and this guy started hitting on me in front of my mom, which is like wild. And he was just like, hey, what's your name? You're so beautiful. You're too pretty to be just black. I was fucking pissed when I heard that. And I told him, I'm just black. Get out of my face. And he left. And like my mom looked at me and then she started crying. Like she literally started sobbing on the street. And she's just like, okay, but you get your beauty from me too. And you know that I'm, I'm Indio. Like you can't just say that to people. And I'm like, well, he was saying that because he's anti-Black. And I recognized that I had to, at least at that moment, I had to do something to acknowledge my mom's presence and her family lineage in my life, while also addressing the constant anti-Blackness that I experience. I had to find a balance because there are people like that who are ridiculous, who are just saying like things to discredit Black people and the beauty that they bring to my life as well, versus also acknowledging and accepting my mother's heritage in my life without also erasing her, while also trying to acknowledge my Blackness. I always centered my Blackness in a very strong way because so many Dominicans are anti-Black. And I had to be like, your Dominicans are Black. And I would have to like yell that at my family members, you know, I would have to tell that to so many people like, oh, yeah, I'm Latino, but that doesn't mean I'm not black. I'm clearly black. I look black. Don't tell me I'm not black. That's ridiculous. But that day when I saw her crying, I knew that like the way that man handled that and talked to me was obviously peak disrespectful. But I also knew I had to find balance with my mom. I had to acknowledge that heritage as well. So from then on, I tried to like start figuring out what that looks like a little bit more for me and finding that balance because I can't go around just erasing half my family. That, that's not helpful in passing on my lineage. And it, it continues to erase people in my life. Thank you so much for taking the time to take us through who you are. I think one of the things that's really important is that in this month, you know, as we've said before, that in so many ways we think that Indigenous people are a thing of the past when Indigenous people are very 
much a part of our present and future and reflect modernity in so many powerful ways. And I think that, that you do that. So thank you for taking the time for showing us what a future that is Indigenous, Black, trans and two-spirit can look like oh thank you so much i really appreciate speaking with y'all thank you thank you that was activist and educator cleopatra tatabele thank you for joining me on the trans slash podcast now listen all the way through to the end of the show for something extra if you like what you heard, please go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. You can listen to Translash wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on the web at translash.org to sign up for our weekly newsletter. Follow us on X and Instagram at Translash Media. Like us on Facebook for everyone who still uses it and tell your friends. The Translash podcast is produced by Translash Media. The Translash team includes Oliver Ash Klein and Aubrey Calloway. Sandra Adams is a contributing producer to the show and our sound engineer. Brennan Beckwith is our social media producer and digital strategy is handled by Danielle Capistrano. The music you heard was composed by Ben Draghi and also courtesy of ZZK Records. The Translash podcast is made possible by the support of, you guessed it, foundations and listeners like you. I know what I'm looking forward to, and that is Thanksgiving, because it will be a time to take a break. Um, also, it'll be a chance to see my friends who I don't get to see as often as I can because I'm on the road or doing a gazillion other things. So that's going to be fun and and a good time for me. It's also just a tremendous time to think about um, being grateful. For me, I don't know about y'all, but I didn't really grow up with the pilgrim myth, so I never associated it with that, like the whole mythology around it, never really kind of came into my household or was a part of our experience. For us, it was really about the ability to connect with family and friends and to reaffirm ourselves um, and our culture, to be honest. So for so many people, I know that that will be true for you. You all will be doing Friendsgivings. You all will be finding ways to go to the movies, even if you don't you know, mark this day or have food. I just think that in this time, it's so important for us to find ways to connect with each other. And sometimes holidays are really sad. I've had you know, really sad, lonely holidays when it's been just me. So it's a reminder as well to be sure to reach out to people who you know or think might be alone that day and to bring them kind of in your orbit if that's what they wish. Sometimes you just want to be alone. So yeah, next week, um, let's take a break. Let's connect. Let's affirm each other. And let's not buy into the pilgrim myth.